0: Hello and welcome to another episode of uh, ICS CyberTalks podcast. And today I have with me uh, a very interesting guest, Omri wexler who is a top researcher uh, for um, a strategic uh, country and uh, in the, well, Omri, you should say it, <laughs> so welcome.
1: Thank you. Um, okay, if if I'm if I'm supposed to to define uh, what I do, basically I'm a researcher and um, in in the Blavatnik Interdisciplinary Cyber Research Center in Tel Aviv University, and at the Yuval Neeman Workshop for uh, Science, Technology, and Security, uh, which is a national security think tank, both in Tel Aviv University. Outside than that, I'm also a threat intelligence analyst in uh, Cognite, although whatever I'm going to say today, I represent only myself and my research, you know. You always Mm -hmm. have to remain uh, legal department's best friend, you know.
0: (laughs) No problem. Only for those that are uh, watching us uh, now, um, we decided to switch from Hebrew to English podcast in the last minute. So... um, I'm a bit confused. We would uh, do everything as needed that would be all right. So we start always the same way. And this is a short bio. Tell us about yourself so people can understand where you are coming from and then we would move on.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Um, So
1: basically, I did to reach this... um, world of, of cyber and technology and all these kind of topics, I made a different course than most would think. Um, seven years ago, I came back from a master's degree in Germany. Um, in my BA and master's, I, I studied uh, subjects that are unrelated to, to cybersecurity or technology and so on, um, mostly uh, political science, international relations, Middle Eastern studies and so on. Interesting. Yes, definitely. It was it for me. It was really interesting, but you know you can't can't really find a lot of jobs in that. And um, in a very random uh, kind of way, I found a job as a research assistant at the Yuval Neyman workshop um, under a Professor and um, uh, say General Major General retired uh, Isaac Ben Israel. The one and the only. The one and only, indeed. Um, and from there, you know, th- that's that's how I started. So basically from not from, like, uh, any technological background and so on. Um, and since then, you know... Uh,
0: but you still deal with the most technological issues there are around right now.
1: Yeah, well, uh, it's kind of one thing led to another, uh, in a way. Uh you start, you know, you start reading all sorts of materials and you translate a lot of uh, terms and keywords that you don't quite understand at the beginning. Um, and yeah, I mean, at some point I decided that I want to write an article um, just using all the materials that I've collected in my work. And you know, one article, then another one, and then you kind of fall in love uh, in the process of of learning and writing and publishing things. And, you know, you you develop, you progress, and, you know, more opportunities arrive,
0: and here I am. (laughs) Very well, and thank you for being here. Thank you for hosting Uh, me. So, um, we would start with the topic of AI. Mm -hmm. This is the big buzz right now, and in a way, my feeling Okay, and I'm saying that it's my feeling. That a lot of people are talking about it, less understand what they're saying about it. Now, a lot of, you know, buzzwords, and I I would go to my childhood, okay? Uh, When I was a child, I was a very big fan of Isaac Asimov. And... I'm talking about almost 40 years ago, even more. And one of the things was, of course, all the robots issues and the three rules. But another thing that was over there was uh, what he called the um, uh, Frankenstein syndrome. The fear of the machine.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And for my point of view, I have the feeling that we are over there. Because most of the talking that I'm hearing and that are around, it's the fear of the machine that would talk with the machine and they would have a language that nobody else can understand and one day they would kill us all. And I'm saying, well, guys, I'm not sure that this is the situation, this is where we are standing. But... On the other hand, definitely we would need some regulation for this. And the question is, there was a very long way that machines start thinking. Okay? So we are talking about machine learning, after that the deep learning and then artificial intelligence. So Can you make some order in all those words so we can understand better those that are watching us or listening to us? What is the difference and where we come to? Yeah, sure. Um,
1: So basically, we have to make some uh, distinctions, right? So at this point, what we have is what we call narrow AI which basically is a subset of AI that um, is designed to solve specific problems or to show any sort of um, cognitive, um, to, 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 to do all kinds of cognitive tasks, but in a very limited way, such as um, image recognition, autonomous driving, and so on. In the future, not the long future, but, in a couple of years or maybe decades, we will have what we will call uh, general AI or artificial general intelligence. It has some some um, versions to it, yeah. which basically means that machines will be able to um, show, um, basically to do all sorts of cognitive tasks, but in different, uh, let's say, uh, in a combined kind of way. I mean, it's not going to be limited. It's going to be more like um, it would be able to replace um, human workforce um, and do more than just one specific task that it was designed to do. Some speculations talk about uh, what's going to be in the long future, which is the the artificial superintelligence, which basically means that machines will surpass uh, human human intelligence, which I speculate it's... Well, at some point, you know, these machines... Also today, by the way, they do have um, areas where they do better than human beings because they're able to uh, ingest very large um, quantity of data and do it fast. But in certain areas... The way this this thing goes, they won't be able to replace us completely. Um, and and I'll come back to it later if you want me to expand on this. But yeah, of course. And then and then you have the other divisions as well. We, you talked about machine learning, which is a subset of AI. And machine learning basically is is uh, algorithms that focus on statistical models. They learn from, from from data, from training data, and they're supposed to make decisions and predictions without being uh, explicitly programmed to. All right? Um, deep learning is a subset of machine learning, and that's and what you do, you take the algorithms of the machine learning and you layer them up and in, in a way that resembles uh, uh, neural networks. I mean, deep learning was supposed to to um, resemble or to imitate uh, neural networks in the brain. And therefore, there, this uh, subset of machine learning is able to um, conduct or to perform uh, more complex
0: ta- uh, tasks than machine learning. If I would measure human against machine, mm-hmm. I believe that the real power of the human mind would be the innovation part. Because the innovation is something that is not really coming from learning. It's a combination of a lot of things. It can be research, it can be, you know, you slept in the night, you had a dream and voila. From your researchers and other researchers that you know, can a machine be innovative?
1: Well, the the way um, the way it's structured, um, I don't know. I, I guess that many many uh, of our uh, listeners or viewers, uh, whoever ever took uh, a scientific field in in university or or, or, so, or they also teach it in social sciences. But if you've ever heard of of the scientific theory that basically. Uh, is focused on how we conduct science, right? So there was, I think it was uh, 16th century or 17th century, there was Lord Francis Bacon mm-hmm. who said that the way to conduct science is to collect uh, predictions, to collect uh, observations, sorry. And then you make a generalization out of them. It's inductive reasoning, basically. And then you deduce... Um, from this rule, this generalization that you made, in order to predict or identify what's going to happen the next time this event or observation occurs. And then at some point, well, in the 20th century came the philosopher Karl Popper, who basically said that you cannot, you, you, what you have to do is that you have to falsify uh, Hypotheses, in order to to, you know, maintain them. I mean, in, in, to to keep them relevant in a way. Okay, and that's exactly the thing with AI. AI uses inductive reasoning, in a way, automated inductive reasoning, and f- for that part, it is based on data whether it is structured or supervised learning or, or non- unsupervised learning, it is based on data. So basically, even if it finds a pattern or, an, or makes a prediction that you're not uh, familiar with, it is still based on training data at some point or another. Therefore, in terms of imagination, I think that's something that, that the machine will always lack. That's at least... Uh, my way of thinking that, um... let's jump into cyber.
0: Yes. what is between AI and cyber? because we lot we have a lot of things that are said around. first of all, did we open a Pandora box? Because, you know, Everybody is talking about the future and in the future it would be, the cyber would be machine against machine, human don't have what really to do over there. Which, again, I'm a bit skeptic about it. But where where are we and where we are going to?
1: Well, I guess that... Um... Well, most of the stuff we have now is, is speculations and predictions of of ourselves. Basically, saying, okay, if AI will automate everything, why shouldn't it be able to automate um, the conduct of cyber attacks, right? And with all sorts of of um, new services now, such as ChatGPT and 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 so on, many people started thinking, okay, maybe we're here, as as you said. Now I see it uh, in a different way. Uh, ChatGPT is going to enable some things. It also, it it already enables sort of things, for example, um, in terms of phishing attacks. So it you can if English is not your native language, you can use ChatGPT in order to form a very convincing sort of text that will be used in a phishing attack. But that's not. I know that phishing attacks uh, comprised. Uh, most of the cyber attacks today, I mean, as the initial attack vector, yeah. but it's not quite in the realm of cyber as it is in social engineering. In a way, it's like hacking the human being, the the basically uh, convincing you to open uh, an email, an SMS, uh, a file to download something. So that's that's it, but. In the future, you know, who knows, we don't, most of the stuff we know is from things that were developed in labs as, 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 a, as a POC, as basically a proof of concept, such as um, IBM in 2018, where they came up with, uh, I think it was called DeepLocker. It was a malware that, uh, based on machine learning, that they've um, embedded in a video conferencing software and could have identify its targets via facial recognition. So um, these things we've only seen uh, in labs so far, Um, but I guess at some point it will happen, you know?
0: You know, it was uh, about, I believe, two years ago that every startup was, you know, about five years ago Every startup was adding the word cyber to his resume or to his name um, for gathering money from investors, okay? Two years ago, they start with the AI, so it was cyber and AI. a lot of time they don't really know to explain what is the AI in the game um, and and I'm sorry for those that uh, do know, so please forgive me uh, up front but we were using the AI words we were using uh, the Neuron uh, network um, that was the training network for AI and when the Chat GPT came out, it was opening for all of those that are not only professionals. It's like it was another add-on. I'm saying all the time that my phone is one of my add-ons. I don't remember any more um phone numbers. Um A lot of times, I don't remember even names because this is one of my problems. I I recognize faces, less names. But when I have my add-on, which is the smartphone, then I have everything. So Google become part of me, really. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, and the GPT right now looks like it's another add-on that I'm getting. What I'm not sure and this is because I was trying that for a couple of times, is that my feeling is that if there is all the data, the answer would be correct. There is a lot of issue even with the way that you are asking the question. Exactly. Because if you are not asking it right in the right way, you would get a lot of bullshit. Mm -hmm. And we already read about uh, articles about Answers that had nothing with reality, okay, that people were trying. This is when it went out to the public. Now, we can't take it back, probably, because it's out. I know that a lot of people are using that uh, mostly for uh, writing, which is okay. It's fine. and we came to the point that i'm hearing about a lot of developers that are trying to write code through the gpt yes now this is a big risk can you explain
1: what is the risk in it look well i guess you said it yourself if it's not if it produces inaccurate results or or invents things that you know that do not exist, then of course, you know, you're going to base your software on something that um, was written by a software that, you know, sometimes may produce inaccurate um, products. That's that's a risk indeed. I think that also um, another thing is that people thought also with with software development, but also with cyber, which basically at some point, you know, you do have software development also in this field. Yeah, of course. Um, That it's going to open the door for many other people, uh, less technical, um, less abled, you know, people that, well, not abled is not the right word, maybe, but... People um, that are not good programmers, or maybe have no idea in programming, and so on, and will enable them uh, to write all sorts of programs, also malware in in certain uh, cases, and so on. But I can say that from from a personal, uh, well, it wasn't me, but a colleague of mine, for example, who tried and has experience in that. Um, and we tried to write a malware just for uh, as an experiment, yeah, right? Of course. And you have to be very specific. First of all, you have to be very specific in the way you ask it because ethically, the, the algorithm, the machine will tell you like, ah, I cannot. It's it's not ethical. But also, when you order the the ChatGPT to write it, you have to be very specific with what you want in terms of the code itself, like the abilities and so on. So I think that thing was a bit exaggerated in a way that, I mean, the, the, whole, the whole thinking that it's going to, let's say, the democratization of, of, of mal- malware creation, right? Because you still need a lot of knowledge and, and, and experience in order to tell the machine exactly what you want. So for now, I think this uh, th- risk was exaggerated. But then, you know, with everything, you know, you start slow and, you know, you, you, you increase the pace. So same thing is going to be with AI. Same thing you said about um, inaccurate results. You know, I, 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 yesterday I thought about it and, and I kind of thought of AI... And compared it, like you know, with at the beginning of the twentieth century, with aircrafts, you know, people said, "Oh, this thing keeps on crashing all the time; it's never going to be of use," you know. And all of a sudden, it's after some years, you know, yeah. so we'll will develop from here. I'm sure.
0: Uh, I'm looking at that. Uh, well, in I'm going to the past, uh, let's see, um, let's say um, the open source. Yes. Okay, Uh, and why I'm comparing it, it's because at the beginning, um, everybody was using the open source. Uh, It took quite time until the licensing issue came out, and as you probably know, there are hundreds of licenses, different licenses for open source. And probably it would happen here also because... If the training of the AI is on public domain, it might be that it would take code parts of someone else, which it might be propriety or it can be GitHub or something like this, and is bringing it in and you don't really know where you took it from. So it might be that you would find yourself that you need to pay royalties to someone because it's his code. It's not your code. It's the GPT brought it from somewhere. It isn't invented, right?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So where does it put it? Where does it put us with that? Can, do we have any way today um, to make sure that we're not using something which is a propriety of someone else? Um, Sorry that I'm bringing you into this uh, issue, but it's very interesting <laughs> for me.
1: Yeah, well, with that regard, um, it's a good question. It's a, indeed a good question. Um I'm not quite sure of all the mechanisms that are used in order to um, prevent that from happening. But in this case, I'm sure that, you know, they're going to come up with with some solution because when, you know, when it comes to legal terms and legal issues, then at some point... And money. And money, exactly. Um, Especially money. Uh, I'm sure they'll come up with a a solution. But I think that also, you know... here we can see the the convergence of of the the risks that we already know with open source. So, for example, what happens if you ask uh, any sort of A, of an AI um, uh, with ChatGPT, the the public version at least, uh, the the database is already closed. You know, it's like up until 2021, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Um, but with other ones that may be open to the Internet, um, yeah, what prevents it? You know, you talked about proprietary code and so on, but what prevents it from bringing in some some code with some malicious uh, lines inside that someone uploaded, some malicious uh, threat actor uploaded some malicious code to, to GitHub or so on, and now the AI brings it to you, you know?
0: I see in the professional groups of cyber Mm -hmm. a lot of talking about exactly about that. Like, okay, we closed for everybody um, in the company uh, the way of using uh, the GPT, okay? Because, again, we are afraid that a malware or anything, any malicious would come through that and into our uh, network, and it would be because it's from someone which is not working inside the company, so uh, probably it would be easier to this malicious to go in and then spread. Of course, in the end of the day, this is what the attacker wants, wants to get inside and then start to spread, hold some, as many assets as he can, and only then go out. What is the recommendation from your point of view right now to allow uh, people in the organization work with the GPT or not? Cyber view, of course.
1: Yeah, I think um, each organization with their own um, uh, risk appetite you know some organizations, you know startups and so on. You know could be that they can allow themselves to take more risks. They're not holding a lot of, uh, say, personal information or or critical information and so on. Um, again, it's it's a matter of of risk analysis. I think it really depends
0: because you're um, belong to the place that is looking on the state strategy, country strategy of cyber, either attack or defense. Do you already see, um, let's say in uh, the war of Russia and Ukraine and others, that they are using already AI inside either for defense or for attack? Um, In country level? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Not quite. I mean, the examples are very scarce. Um, there was one interesting case where uh, I think three weeks ago perhaps, there was a, a, a deep fake video of Putin declaring uh, martial law in uh, basically well, someone apparently hacked into, into a, a TV channel in Russia. Um, it's called the Mir channel. It's a news channel that works in Russia and other post-Soviet mm-hmm. countries. And they've um, broadcasted a deepfake of Putin saying that some Ukrainian militias invaded um, Western Russia, uh, the Belgorod area and so on, and that he has to um, declare martial law and uh, a general um, uh, recruitment to the army. And of course, that was deepfake fake made by AI, uh, I can only imagine, I can only guess uh, who's who's standing behind it, right?
0: Yeah, of course.
1: Um, so in that sense, yes, we've seen some. Uh, also, there was also a deepfake of, of Zelensky, uh, I think, a year ago, or, or at the beginning of the invasion where there was a deepfake of him uh, calling the, the Ukrainian military to surrender and so on. So, in that sense, we do see it, but you know for for all the other stuff that we've we've spoken about, it is yet to be seen. at least from what I know, the thing yeah. is that we only know like a little fraction of whatever is happening yeah,
0: of course Let's jump into other issue, yeah, other subject mm-hmm. and uh, I know that this is something that you deal with uh, quite a lot, and this is space: yes. Um, cyber in space for me, it's, you know, it's a fantasy. (laughs) We are talking all the time about networks on earth, you know, inside factories, in other places. Less we understand about the idea of what can be done in space. Okay, we know that today satellites are having a huge transform of data, um, especially in communication. And probably, as everything else, it's another target. So, what are the targets that we are looking at space? From Acker uh, point of view, Attacks. Why do what they are looking to get from the, those attacks?
1: So, um, first of all, let let me start by 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 s- talking about why the space sector is so special in terms of other sectors. Yeah, yeah like, please. Com- comparing to other sectors. Yeah, put us no. into the zone. Exactly. Good. So. Basically, the, the space sector started as, a say, a more governmental, military sector. You know, governments used to build their own satellites. They were used to um, invest the most money in it. Um, up until the 90s, I think, all of the money. Uh, and at some point, you know, uh, first of all, more some some technologies that were originally created for military use such as navigation the gnss the um and the internet basically became uh, civilized you know more yeah and with the development of of computing and it technology of course um more and more businesses realized hey there's a, there's an opportunity here we can Used these things uh, for many uh, commercial services, and the whole sector went through a very uh, accelerated uh, commercialization. And basically, because and, and and by the way, government and militaries are still using uh, satellites for various of of of, yeah, of, uh, of uh, tasks. And because of that the this the satellites are still let's say it like that they' are a prime target for espionage uh one because of course classified information intelligence services military and government and so on and second of all because um now with with more satellite communication coming in, it becomes yet another another source of of targeting just for for getting data that you know Telecommunication companies uh, produce and so on. Um, other things, with, when we look at um, navigation services, GNSS, uh, we see more. Um, it's of course it's less um, uh, espionage, but more uh, say um, disturbance and uh, of of um, of services of navigation services uh we see it mostly in, um around war and conflict zones so for example in syria there's a constant uh, jamming um or or spoofing um i wouldn't say attacks because it's constantly happening right yeah uh, around russia and ukraine obviously um so yeah esp- espionage uh, disturbance of, of services of course each each service and and what they produce um and you know each have their own uh reason why they're so lucrative uh for attackers
0: We saw um attacks on satellites in the ukraine russia war um when we talked uh, before this uh, podcast, you were talking about Vsat. Uh, can can you give us some examples to understand better what was the attack and how it influenced? Yes. Um, well, Vsat
1: is, is an, an American um, satellite communication company. And... On the day that the Russian military, the Russian army invaded Ukraine, um, of course, they, they targeted government uh, agencies and banks and so on. And what they tried with the Viasat attack is to paralyze or to um, disturb or shut down satellite communication uh, to the Ukrainian military. So what they did at least according to the reports that I read mm-hmm. is that they it was pretty sophisticated because at the beginning someone everyone thought that it was a jamming attack that they've overrun the the the, the signal t- transmission that goes to the satellite by by producing a stronger signal and overrunning it but then they realized that the ground terminals that are used to by by the very users that's p- part of the user segment what we call it and it's used to communicate or or to by the, by by the users to send data to the satellite and receive data from the satellite and these ones were inoperable and what investigators realized at some point is that russian the these russian attackers um used a vulnerability in a VPN service if i'm not mistaken it was a fortinet um don't tell Hillel that i that i mentioned <laughs> his, his company in a, in a bad uh, no no it's okay in a bad sense um, so they used the VPN uh, vulnerability to access a server that belongs to to utelsat it's a, it's a subsidiary of Vsat. and then they sent uh, a wiper malware to all these ground terminals and basically wiped them off, which kind of shows uh, sophistication. Then, uh, of course, Ukraine turned up uh, to SpaceX and asked Elon Musk to help, and he and he sent um, ground terminals of of Starlink, uh, their satellite communication mm-hmm. service, to Ukraine, and also Starlink. Well. They tried to hack Starlink as well, but Starlink managed to to fight it off um at least in my opinion, they showed some some uh they've say there there are a lot there are a lot of positive lessons we can learn from the way that Starlink handled these uh attacks uh first of all by by being able to push um software updates in real time to their terminals. Then also, um, basically, by the the way their incident response team handled it in real time. And also by Elon Musk's own announcement that I, hopefully, I I choose to look at it as some sort of a commitment Mm -hmm. that Starlink will now uh, uh, redirect funds to invest more in the cybersecurity of the service. Um so that's that's two uh, case studies very very prominent case studies that we've seen um last year it's it's interesting because researchers for years I, I guess for the last decade decade perhaps warned that at some point we will see these attacks and there were incidents there were incidents along the years but Nothing was so, let's say, uh, wi- widespread in terms of, of the way that um, the media reported about it. So we, we saw incidents, but you know, it's, it was kind of kept in the shadows and so on. Yeah. And that's yet another problem that, that infests the whole, say, security field of, of space systems, that because everything was so uh, classified. You don't really know the full scale of of the cyber attacks and cyber incidents uh, for uh, space on for or in space systems.
0: Yeah, well, we know that for a couple of years and maybe even a decade, as you said, uh, th- there is uh, a space war between mm-hmm. countries. So it's China, it's uh, the US, it's Russia, and. Well, probably, uh, we are also somewhere in the middle because uh, we are one of the countries that are providing satellites. And it's very interesting to see that from talking about physical attack that would take out uh, satellites from working, it's turned on into a cyber, that it's more... Uh, deny of service, other than you know, blow up the, the the satellite himself, and this is very interesting. It's like a very interesting change in the way that uh, the states are thinking. I I don't know if you it's if it's for good or for bad, but it's a change. Does only states attack satellites or? did we see already um the crime syndicate of cyber that is trying to do that private uh, groups that are trying to do that are there any evidence for that so i'll start from
1: uh, i'll I'll divide the question the the answer into two parts first of all in terms of the trends um I cannot say that we see a space war per se we do see two uh, terms that people usually use interchangeably and I think we should distinguish between them one is the militarization of space basically it concerns of the use of space systems for military purposes and that's a trend that you took that has been taking place you know, since, since Reagan, exactly. So, well, even before. Okay. Um, you know, reconnaissance satellites, military uh, satellite communications, remote laser sensing. satellites
0: that would uh, have the beam to attack uh, the Earth. Oh no, the, these ones are, are
1: part of the other, uh, <laughs> okay. the other trend. So the one is the militarization of space. Um, okay. The other one is the weaponization of space.
0: Okay, and now I understand w- the, uh, where you divided things. Okay, exactly.
1: Fine. And the weaponization of of space basically is it, it's focused on developing and introducing uh, capabilities to target uh, satellites and other space assets, or mounting weapons on them, such as you know the laser that destroys yeah. the Earth and so on. Um, and in the last couple of years what we've seen with the weaponization of space it's 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 a trend that has been going for for decades you know but in a fluctuating manner so there were years where where we've seen less activity in that regards there were years that we've seen an an increase in activity and in the last couple of years we see more and more states amongst which are the most capable ones that have been establishing space commands and space military units. Um, Examples is the United States uh, Space Force, the rearrangement of space commands, both in 2019. Um, China has has a space unit under its uh, strategic support forces that was established in uh, 2015. Mm -hmm. And so on Russia, Australia, Iran, France, that's only a partial uh, list. and. Alongside of that, you see also uh, the use of uh, the the development and testing of more capabilities. Some of them are kinetic, such as uh, direct ascent uh, missiles or or, um, directed energy systems, such as uh, um, uh, microwave uh, and, and lasers and so on. And, of course, you can also see cyber capabilities. Now, the thing is that I'm not... Of course, the, the Russian-Ukraine war has shown us, at least if you look at the Russian um, uh, cyber warfare efforts, that cyber capabilities do have their own limitations. So you have to set them up, you have to maintain them. You know, It's not like a magic kind of capability that you press a red button and bam, someone is hacked. Um, so I think that... As long as you have, let's say, so-called peacetime or gray zone or, 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 you know, everything that is not an ongoing conflict, you see more use of cyber capabilities because you can use them to spy, uh, which is basically the vast majority of state-sponsored cyber activities, espionage. Um, And it allows you a lot of deniability, the, the problem of attribution and so on. Um, So in peace times or gray zone times or whatever you want to call it, you'll see more cyber capabilities in action. Whereas at war, I'm not quite sure. You'll see attempts to hack satellites, that's for sure. But given the limitations, who knows what they're going to use? Um, With kinetic weapons, it's something else because using missiles or any any, um, capability to blow up satellites... Creates what we call space debris, all these little parts and shrapnels and so on that keep on uh, moving around, moving around like, yeah. the Earth. Yeah, and so it jeopardizes also the attackers' space assets. So that's another thing to think about. You know, in November 2021, the Russians uh, blew up their own satellites, and some shrapnels made holes in the in the International Space Station. Astronauts were were forced to take cover and so on. So these are the the um, dilemmas in choosing which capability t- to use. Yeah. Um, another thing is the movement towards using um, constellations of satellites in low Earth orbit. So back in the day, they used to well, at least today, but it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a trend that basically is ongoing that in the past they used to launch satellites to what we call the geostationary uh, orbit 36,000 kilometers above above Earth nowadays um, in terms of of, uh, less latency and so on, they start uh, sending satellites to low Earth orbit like a couple of hundreds of kilometers above, above Earth and in order, in, in well, when we when you do that, you get limited coverage, because you know the higher the altitude, the bigger yeah, areas of, of Earth the satellite can cover. So in order to compensate for that, they started launching constellations of of hundreds or dozens of satellites. Now, if you blow up a satellite or you use a laser to 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 blind the the sensors and so on. It is un- it's still unlikely to take down the whole service. So you get the advantage as an operator uh, of, of satellite services or a defender, whatever you want to call it, you get the advantage of redundancy. The only way, and that's not me saying, that was Derek Turnier, the director of the Space Development Agency under the U.S. Space Force, mm-hmm. saying that the only way to take down the whole constellation is by cyber attack. If you hack, the, if you target the right target, such as the ground control station, uh, of course, it has its own challenges, but that's the way to do it. Now to the other part of the question regarding um, cyber criminals, I haven't seen it yet. Um, I've seen only one example in actually a a Russian-speaking dark web forum, a threat actor—we will so professional way to to call these people. Uh, one of the forum members um, offering to sell an access to Maxar uh, Technologies satellites. Uh, Maxar is an imaging—they um, have imaging satellites. Mm-hmm. Um, they're being used in Ukraine. Uh, I think it was. Deputy uh, Minister of Defense of Ukraine that said or someone else that said that more than 50% of their, commun- of their intelligence uh, originates uh, in these satellites. And th- this forum member was, was selling access to the satellite. He didn't say exactly how and what. I guess it was credentials for any, any system in the ground yeah, control of for $8,000. Now, my crypto wallet is empty, I'm not, I'm not willing to, <laughs> to buy this kind of stuff, but yeah, we don't know whether it's true, we don't know whether um, he has the right um, access credentials, if it's not a, a scam or so on, but that's, that's one case. Um, I haven't seen any other yet, so for now it is still um, a state's uh, kind of
0: capability. Very, very interesting Actually, we, we came to the end. Mm-hmm. We are almost one hour wow, in the air.
1: that went fast. <laughs> <That's, laughs>
0: yeah, usually it's working this way. For the both uh, issues that we were talking about, the AI and uh, the cyberspace, what would you like our listeners to take from this conversation?
1: I think that you know if we spoke about you know several technology areas that you know may look unconnected I think that it's important to understand that everything is connected and everything is going to be even more connected you know in the in the near future um so we have to understand that that in order to really know how to protect ourselves in order to understand Really what's going on, we have to have at least some sort of a basic understanding of how each and every one of these uh, fields um, relate and how these machines in a way work and, and connect and interact with each other. Um, and that's that's the major one, I think.
0: Very good thank you very much for your time. Thank you for thank you. coming to the studio. Um, I would apologize for uh, the beginning, at least for my side, uh, because we really decided to go to English, <laughs> you know, um, something like uh, less than a minute before we started. <laughs> so I, uh, I know that uh, the other part was very well. So thank you very much. And uh, probably we would meet again. By the way, we are now exactly one year from the first time that we met. It was on the Cyber Week, uh 2022 when we talked about you coming to the podcast.
1: Mm-hmm. We have an anniversary.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's very well. And I hope that... Um, when uh, Dr. Gilbaram is coming to Israel next month, uh, maybe we can do something together as well. So uh, we have some things to the future, and it's very good. Indeed, I'd be happy from my side.
1: Thank good. you very much. <laughs> Thank you.